Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be learning about the problems with genetic testing for pets and hearing about the history of automata. Plus, an ongoing debate about what to do with conservation data. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up, Noah Baker has been selflessly volunteering to play with puppies. It was a difficult task, but somebody had to do it. Noah, we salute you. His tireless fieldwork investigates genetic testing in pets. Could it be a useful tool or a dangerous distraction? This is the sound of 11 puppies. They're just six days old, and they're rushing, as much as puppies of that age can rush, to feed from their mum, Lola a tired but proud golden retriever. Lola's owner is Lily Hayward. I've had a dog most of my life and occasionally breed and have several, several at home now. Before they had puppies, Lily made sure that both Lola and the puppy's dad, a handsome miniature poodle called Ted, were genetically screened for hereditary diseases. Um, Every time I've bought a puppy, I've checked that both parents are genetically clear. And if I've ever bred a litter, I've screened both parents. For Lily, the health of her dogs is paramount. But sadly, not everyone has the same priorities. The pursuit of desirable physical characteristics has led to inbreeding and with that hereditary disease. The very same diseases that people like Lily are now trying to screen out. It's a problem that Lisa Moses, a vet and bioethicist based in Massachusetts, knows all too well. We have to sort of confront the legacy of the selective breeding that we've done in dogs in particular and all of the associated health concerns that go along with it. I suppose it's become normality for pedigree dogs to have hereditary problems. So that's why I wanted to sort of minimise those risks, really. But this week in Nature, Lisa and her colleagues are arguing that genetic screening in pets may not be all it's cracked up to be. For most, the vast majority of these tests, we really don't have any information about whether or not the 
genetic variant that is tested for is likely to end up causing disease in that individual animal or whether or not there are other variants that are just as important for us to test for. Lisa argues that without more fundamental research to understand the link between genes and disease, there are questions about the usefulness of genetic tests. Even without more research, Lisa doesn't disapprove of genetic testing per se, but she warns against poor interpretation of the results, in particular when that leads to clinical decisions. I think that there is some validity to using them for guidance in breeding programs as long as you understand the context of the specific test. Part of the problem is that our knowledge of whether or not there are other clinically significant genetic variants for individual diseases is limited. This is a problem that Lily thinks she may have experienced personally. We've had a litter of spaniel poodle crosses where both lines were genetically tested clear. They were absolutely fine when they were born, but one of the puppies developed deafness and blindness and some neurological issues. They went off to their new homes and we had two come back with blindness. Now, problems in litters can happen. Infections, complications in the womb and so on. But only about a quarter of the puppies were affected in this case, while the others showed no symptoms at all. And that gave Lily pause for thought. She wondered if the problem could be genetic, specifically a common condition called progressive retinal atrophy, or PRA. But both parents had supposedly been genetically cleared for this disease. I spoke to a geneticist about that. They were quite sure that it probably wasn't PRA-related, which is something we questioned although a local veterinary surgeon who'd looked at one of the dogs suggested that it could be a form of PRA that we weren't testing for. Lily never got to the bottom of what the problem was. And this conflicting advice from veterinary professionals can be tricky for dog owners. I think the vet's um, training, although they're extremely good at some things, um, I don't think they continue their research anywhere near as much when they're practising. As a practising vet herself, Lisa agreed with regard to genetics testing, but with one caveat. I really don't think it's veterinarians' fault in most cases. Some of it is that this is a very rapidly developing field, and it's not something that there's a lot of easily accessible information for most veterinary professionals. Part of the problem, Lisa says, is that unlike in human medicine, there's little to no regulation for veterinary medicine, at least in the States. The bar is set quite high for genetic variants in human health care to be designated as ones that are really worrisome or likely to cause disease. We have no such system in veterinary medicine. I'm really hoping that within my lifetime I see the huge benefit that the promise of these tests hold, Um, but we just need more information before we can do that, and we need to adopt some of the standards that they've adopted for human health care to make sure that we know whether or not we really have to worry about some of these results. At least for now, for this litter, Lily can rely on Lola the Golden Retriever to take care of her puppies as only a dog can. Genetic testing or not.
That was Noah Baker speaking with Lisa Moses from the MSPCA Angel Animal Medical Centre and Harvard Medical School. You also heard from Lily Hayward, a dog owner, and Noah's friend's mum. To find out more, you can read Lisa's comment at nature.com slash news. And if, like me, you can't resist a puppy pick, we'll tweet some of Lola the Golden Retriever and her litter. Find that at Nature Podcast. Still to come in the research highlights, ancient bread and bridging the connections of paralysing injuries. Before that, though, it was only last week on the podcast that we brought you a segment about a robotic chemist, a machine that could learn and automatically carry out tens of experiments a day in the quest for new reactions. This was a new study, but the idea of automatic machines is not a particularly new one. This week, in Nature's Books and Arts section, there's an essay on humanity's relationship with these automata throughout history. I went up to the University of Cambridge to meet one of the two authors, Kanta Dihal. She explained to me just how long automatic machines have been a part of human culture. Um, automata are actually thousands of years old. So they were both um, being actually built by engineers and there were lots of stories about uh, fantastical automata created by the gods that could do even more amazing things uh, than these engineers could. So in the Iliad, which was uh, written roughly 800 BC, Homer describes uh, ideas of uh, the god Hephaestus making um, robot women but also automatic tripods to help him in his forge. Do you personally, when you look back at, I guess, all these descriptions, do you have a favourite example of one? So one I really like is uh, Talos. Uh, This was a fictional one. Talos was uh, basically... I would say the first killer robot, <laughs> and he he was a bronze man shaped uh, robot that w- could move by itself and walked around the island of Crete where he would throw boulders at invaders. But the cool thing is that he had limited intelligence, um, and he was very much programmed to stay around Crete. Is this him on the screen here? Yes, that's Talos. He's very human, though. He's very uh, you know. If you hadn't told me this context. Looking at these, I would think these were meant to be statues of normal people. I wouldn't have necessarily thought of an automaton. Yes, um, so he looks very human-like, and the only thing that really distinguishes him is uh, that he's made of bronze. So far for for historical automata, we've mostly spoken about myths of automata. Uh, What examples are there of these actually being realised and machines being built? Um, So in antiquity, you had a lot of machines that worked on steam and water power. Um, So you had uh, in the Middle Ages a lot of uh, automata that were particularly used uh, in court to entertain people. I think one of the more brilliant examples that I've heard of recently is um, of someone who made an automaton in the shape of a rabbit. This was the 15th century, 16th, I think. A rabbit that could fart fire. Okay. And what what function could that possibly have? Uh, Clearly, they were used, on the one hand, to impress people, to show off technical ingenuity, but on the other hand, to show off wealth and power. So the idea of automata and actual realisations of automata have been around hundreds, thousands of years... Yes. Have have our feelings around them 
changed in that time? Surely, surely the myths surrounding them have evolved. Well, perhaps not so much as you might think. It wasn't until quite a lot later that um, our the fears that are now more common in our stories around AI and robots, you know, killer robots, AI taking over the world, that that really began, began to come into um, general discourse. You know, whenever we make a video about robots. Someone in the comment section on YouTube will immediately mention Terminator and this threat of the robots becoming too powerful, too intelligent. Mm -hmm. Is that a modern idea? The idea that uh, robots might become more intelligent than us and that they might therefore try to overthrow us is actually also um, an idea that has been uh, popping back up throughout the centuries. There was a story of uh, Daedalus. So Daedalus was a legendary uh, inventor, and he was also said to have made automata, which had a will of their own and kept running away. So you had to sort of nail them down if you wanted to keep them under control. And I suppose now we are starting to realise maybe a lot of the myths that we've created about automata. We're making things which previously were just in stories. Has that itself changed how how we view them? Well, I would say that the stories have changed the way we view science. Because we've had such a long tradition of telling stories about automata, about robots, about what they could do, that has really influenced our hopes and expectations of real robots. Um, you've mentioned the Terminator. The Terminator is probably the biggest distracting factor for everyone because, one, it's very much something that we're not trying to do. Uh, two, the stuff that we are doing is nowhere near. But I think the third reason um, why the Terminator distracts us is perhaps the most important one, is that if it goes badly wrong, it will not go badly wrong according to the plot of the Terminator. We aren't building uh, humanoid killer robots, but right now we are deploying autonomous weapons we are deploying swarms of killer drones and we are deploying machine learning systems in politically sensitive areas. It is not going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's going to look more like a flying fidget spinner. That was Kanta Dihal of the University of Cambridge. There are many, many more examples of automata throughout the ages. To learn more about them and what they tell us about our relationship with these machines today, check out Cantor's essay, Ancient Dreams of Intelligent Machines, 3,000 Years of Robots. Find that at nature.com forward slash news. Later in the show, the end of an era of studying the start of the universe, plus plans to fast forward evolution. Both those stories are in the news chat. Next, though, Shalmini Bundel is here with some bite-sized science stories in this week's Research Highlights. Do you love the smell of freshly baked bread? Well, our ancestors did too. Archaeologists found breadcrumbs at an archaeological site in northeastern Jordan. The site is in the same region that farming developed, but this bread dates back 4,000 years before agriculture began. The remains were uncovered beside stone fireplaces and probably came from flatbreads. The bakers most likely used a hot stone or fireplace ashes to bake their bread, rather than an oven, and the breads contain a tasty combo of wheat, barley and a type of wild tuber. 
The effort it would have taken to bake this bread means it was probably a delicacy. Read that tasty study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Researchers are working on a new way to treat spinal injuries. These injuries often break connections between the brain and the spinal cord, causing paralysis. But the shorter circuits, communicating between spinal segments, can stay intact. Researchers tried to take advantage of this remaining circuitry in paralysed mice. They used a molecule to reduce the activity of neurons near the damaged spinal tissue. This shifted the currents to the local connections, and 80% of the mice were then able to take steps with this treatment. Read more in Cell. When it comes to conservation, knowing what animal or plant is where is super important. Making good policy or management decisions without good data is difficult. For example, if you want to create a nature reserve to protect a particular species, you need to make sure you're putting it in the right place. But important conservation data isn't just related to where a species is or isn't. It also includes things like the location of nests, breeding sites and sources of food. And once the data is collected, what should you do with it? There are a variety of places where data can be stored and shared. Journals, online repositories and citizen science programmes. However, having these data available can be a double-edged sword, as Aisha Tullock from the University of Sydney explains. The problem for conservation is that, that we have this trade-off between wanting more information to inform where we do and how we do conservation, but having a risk that the more information that is out there, the more that species are at risk of exploitation. And this risk is real. For example, after the whereabouts of a population of Chinese cave geckos living in Vietnam was published, they were swiftly poached for the pet trade. So perhaps this kind of data shouldn't be shared. The balance is important because if we spend too much time thinking about only the risks to species of, of data being out there, then we become very risk-averse in our way that we manage our species. We try to lock our information away from people. The problem with that is that there are a lot of organisations um, and individuals out there who have very positive motivations, and those organisations, if they don't have the correct data, are at risk of making the wrong decisions for conservation. Aisha and her colleagues have written a perspective in this week's Nature, Ecology and Evolution, in which they've developed a system to help researchers find a balance between risk and benefit when thinking about publishing biodiversity data. There's been quite a lot of disagreement in the literature over the recent years about should we publish data, shouldn't we publish data. There's some very um, vocal and very good arguments on both sides. So what we wanted to, to do is progress some useful guidance or advice for the research community. So um, the solution we, we sort of propose to this ongoing debate is a decision tree protocol. You may have seen a decision tree before. It starts at the top of a page with a question that has a yes-no answer. If you answer yes, you follow one path, and if you answer no, you follow the other. Then you get to another question, and this again has a yes-no answer, and you keep following the branches until you get to a result. In this case, the decision tree helps researchers who are thinking about releasing data to consider the different pressures on a species and any conservation or policy efforts that are already in place. To test it, the authors put the tree through its paces. 
One of the examples uh, we moved through is actually a giant rat that was recently discovered in the Solomon Islands. We want that information to be out there, but we first need to think about, well, what are the risks if we put the information about where it's been discovered in the public domain? So the team worked through the decision tree, answering questions like, is the wildlife trade the primary threat to the species? For a, a giant kind of hairy rat in the Solomon Islands in the Pacific Ocean, um, it's not very valuable to the wildlife trade. So that's a no. But could the species be threatened by human disturbances? For example, would lots of wildlife spotters travel to the Solomon Islands to tick the rat off their list? From the point of view of the Vancouver giant rat, um, that's also a no. It's not something like uh, a prized exotic bird. OK. Well, is the species threatened by humans because they're considered to be a nuisance? Again, for the, for the giant rat, that was also a no. So, a lot of no's there, suggesting that releasing location data about the rat wouldn't be too detrimental. In fact, making the data public could be beneficial to an animal that researchers suggest is likely to be classified as critically endangered. We found that, yes, that information is really useful in the policy sphere uh, because at the moment most of the habitat for that giant rat is at threat of being logged on the island where it, it occurs. And by information being out there about where that species occurs, conservation organisations can use that to inform where to place nature reserves and where to ensure that uh, logging doesn't affect the habitat of that species in a negative way. Making data public, as in the case of this giant rat, is only one outcome of the decision tree. At the other end of the scale, the outcome might be that data on a species and its location are totally restricted if that organism is especially threatened. In some instances, the outcome of the tree could be somewhere between the two. For example, suggesting that it's OK to release data on what a species is, but not precisely where it is, a strategy that's been used in conservation efforts in the past. A decision like that was actually taken recently when an animal called the night parrot in Australia was recently rediscovered and the government and the recovery team decided to release information that the bird had been found. It's a pretty amazing discovery, but hide the exact location of, of where that species was. And that just protected that parrot until conservation mechanisms are in place. Now that parrot um, is protected by a reserve and by quite big fines if um, someone enters that reserve. So we can share that information now and make it public. This week's Perspective article is the latest chapter in the ongoing debate about what to do with sensitive conservation data. Aisha says that there are a lot of valuable existing protocols for assessing the risk associated with data sharing, but she hopes that the new decision tree will help open up discussions about the potential benefits of data being shared. We're definitely not proposing that this is a sort of a one-size-fits-all solution. We're really hoping that both our researchers and governments engage with us about this decision tree, about how we can implement it into policy or how we can adapt it to um, different contexts and different situations. We step through our tree with a very particular um, objective of conserving threatened species populations, but there's other objectives about why you might share data, things like community engagement, so how might sharing information on, on the locations of, of animals and plants actually build a, a rapport with, with communities and help us um, get better outcomes for conservation. That was Aisha Tollock. You can read her perspective over at Nature Ecology and Evolution. That's at nature.com slash N-E-E. There's also an editorial on the issue of conservation data sharing, and you can find that at nature.com slash opinion. 
Finally this week, it's time for the news chat and Nature Briefing editor Flora Graham joins us in the studio. Hello, Flora. Hello. Our first story for this week's news chat is our second story of conservation in Australia. And here, researchers have been trying to give natural selection a helping hand. That's right. Australia has a lot of very endangered marsupials, as we know. One of them is called the quoll. This little marsupial um, is like a cute little kind of um, long-nosed rat. And unfortunately, it has a taste for invasive cane toads, which are poisonous. Now, when invasive cane toads come to a quoll habitat... Unfortunately, the quolls have, uh, have, have fun eating them up and they tend to get wiped out pretty quickly. So when did the cane toads first actually arrive in Australia? Well, about 80 years ago, uh, they were purposely introduced to Australia in order to control um, a sugarcane eating beetle. But like a lot of these things, it didn't work out in the long haul. So what researchers have been doing, they've been trying to kind of turbocharge natural selection. But what is the natural selection process that's been taking place in the first place? Well, the researchers did spot that some populations of these quoll marsupials did seem to develop an aversion to cane toads. And in the lab, when they took these toad-averse quolls and match-made them with uh, quolls that like cane toads, they found that the offspring did tend to be averse to toads. So they did seem to have evolved this aversion to toads and it seemed to be able to be passed on to the offspring. So this is important, right, because otherwise it might just be something that parent quolls are teaching their offspring rather than some kind of, I, I suppose, genetic thing. Exactly. The key thing here is that this behavior is heritable. And what they're doing now is introducing these two populations, the, the toad lovers and toad haters, onto an island and seeing whether they can, in the wild, reproduce what they found in the lab, which is that they end up with a population of quolls that will not eat toads. And hopefully this means that this technique can be used for all kinds of endangered animals to give them a little helping hand. So this isn't CRISPR, this isn't genetic engineering, this is simply putting two populations together in order to promote the passing on of certain traits. And you mentioned that the that they're doing this real-world experiment introducing quolls to an island. So far, how's that been going? So they've been doing this since May of last year. They released 54 quolls on the island, and the island already had these poisonous cane toads on it. And it's been a bit of a mixed bag. So unfortunately, far fewer quolls survived than they'd hoped. Just 16 quolls were alive at the end of this experiment in April of this year. But um, most of them did seem to be toad-averse. So the, the good news is that it does seem that the ones that are surviving are holding on to this really beneficial trait. But something I guess we'll have to keep watching to see if those only 16 quolls can survive and help populate this island. Exactly. So the researchers are heading back next year and they're going to see what the state of play is then. For our last story in this week's show, let's turn to the end of an era for Planck. Planck is a satellite that many physicists may know, but can you give us a little refresher on what Planck was doing? Absolutely. So Planck was looking at the cosmic microwave background. This is this very faint glow from the absolute earliest moments of the universe that can reveal a lot of things about how the universe initially was born and how it developed in its early stages. But this wasn't the, the first satellite that was making observations of the Big Bang's afterglow. 
Absolutely. There's been three major space telescopes. There's been, a, including COBE, you might have heard of. There's been um, ground-based, balloon-based experiments. But the thing about Planck is that it collected data for such a long time at such incredible detail that a lot of researchers have been able to base whole careers on this data so far. And it's just released its last analysis. So why is this the last analysis? Why is it coming to an end? Well, Planck has really done all that it can do. I think some of the researchers that we spoke to for our article talked about um, the great discoveries that have come from it, but actually the data has kind of served its purpose. So I think everyone's now looking forward to try to think where are we going to get our next insight into the evolution of the universe. But there isn't a replacement for Planck actually planned at the moment. That's right. Uh, a lot of physicists feel that uh, the next thing to look at is the polarization of the cosmic microwave background. And because um, that hasn't really been observed in other experiments, not a lot of governments are really willing to invest the huge amounts of money necessary to put up another satellite for something that just might not be there. If we get clues of that, then would that potentially lead to a satellite being launched? I think that's the hopes. There was a very um, well-publicized experiment called BICEP2 that said that it had found evidence of this. But then it was actually Planck data that revealed it was actually dust in the end. It wasn't in the observation that they had hoped it was. So right now, this is really a big question mark hanging over it. So at the moment, without any further information, are we, are we done with the cosmic microwave background radiation? I can't see that we're, we could be done with it because it's such a great kind of time machine back to the beginning of the universe. And especially with inflation being one of the biggest topics in cosmology at the moment, did the universe expand very, very quickly at the beginning? How did it do that? And how did that contribute to the way the universe is today? I think we're bound to hear more from the CMB. Flora Graham, thank you for joining us. For more on those two news stories and others, of course, head to nature.com forward slash news. Well, listeners, that's it for this week's show. But before we go, I'd just like to say that we always like to hear from you. So don't forget that you can get in touch on Twitter, we're at Nature Podcast, or on email, podcast at nature.com. And make sure to check out our latest video at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. It features lizards and leaf blowers, evolution and extreme weather. Trust me, it'll blow you away. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.